the marriage ceremony continues to have enduring significance and attraction. It is in many sense an amazing thing to see two people in mo on most occasion have spent their lives separate, perhaps haven't known each other for except for a few years, come down the aisle and stand before the pastor and make a vow, two separate people. And they make a vow and they sign the official documents and in the sight of God they are married. Later on, if she cho so chooses, she takes the person's name. And so her maiden name disappears. She is now in a relationship, living in the same home, sharing the same dreams, fighting for the same cause. There's a union between a man and a woman that is a tremendous mystery. And the union between a man and a woman is in some small token a reflection of a greater spiritual union, a union between Jesus Christ and the believer. But when we become Christians, we become married to Christ. We are joined indelibly, inseparably to Jesus Christ. And we see something of this in this book of Colossians. We see this in verses 24 to 29. The Apostle Paul is writing to a church, in some sense, enduring or going through turmoil because there were false teachers who were teaching them that there was greater knowledge to be found in the cults, in false teachings. And Paul, having begun this epistle by outlining to them uh, the great news of God's salvation in their lives, and of having opened for them this tremendous Christological hymn in verses 15 to 20 where he lords the Lord Jesus Christ, glorifies Christ who is God himself, the one who is sovereign over creation and sovereign over the church. The writer Paul goes into this autobiographical section in verses 24 to 29 in which some commentators believe is a digression from the main theme. But he begins to speak in verse 24 to 29 regarding his calling as a steward of the gospel, a steward of the mystery of God. And we see the Apostle Paul telling us that he had received by divine initiative a call to this gospel. He says, I now rejoice in my suffering for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the affliction of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God. There's a lot to unpack there. But he tells them that he is filling up. He is rejoicing in the sufferings that he has for them. And he's filling up in his flesh what is lacking in the affliction of Christ. Now, right here in verse 24, we run into a crux interpretum. You know, there's a difficulty in interpretation. Because there have been questions as to what does Paul mean that he's filling up in his flesh what is lacking in the affliction of Christ. 
Is Paul saying that the redemptive sufferings of Jesus Christ, both in his active obedience, that is, in obeying the law of God, and particularly in his passive obedience, that is, his death on the cross, that there was something lacking in the sufferings of Jesus Christ in the cross, and therefore Paul must now come along with his suffering and fill that up. And we've argued that the New Testament is very clear. That the Lord Jesus Christ offered one sacrifice for sin. A complete sacrifice. A perfect sacrifice to which no other sacrifice can be added. So, that the, so when Paul says he's filling up in his flesh that which is lacking in the affliction of Christ, we must rule out as a matter of course that Paul is not suggesting that he was somehow helping Christ in his redemptive sufferings. The sufferings of Paul then are not redemptive. They're not saving. How then does Paul fill up the afflictions or suffering of Christ? Well, simply this. Because Paul understands that the sufferings of God's people are the sufferings of Christ. You remember the Damascus Road when the Lord met him? And he was struck down and blinded by the brilliance of Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? But in the strictest of circumstances, Paul was persecuting the church. He was going back and forth and arresting Christians and throwing them in jail. But Jesus identified his attack upon his people as an attack upon himself. And so when Paul says he's filling up in his flesh the sufferings of Christ, he means the sufferings that are borne by the people of God for the sake of Christ. Their sufferings are his sufferings. And it's interesting because what it indicates here, at least you can infer, that there is an allotted suffering. The sufferings that you and I endure as Christians are not haphazard. They're controlled. And there's a, there's a certain amount of suffering that we will endure. Paul is saying, I am drawing fire. I'm taking fire in terms of suffering for the church of God. I'm filling it up because God has given an allotted suffering to the people of God. And he's taking it up. He's filling it up because by he suffering for Christ, he's also bringing to completion the sufferings that are intended for the people of God. And it's after this that Paul says that he became a minister according to the steward of God, which was given to me for, to fulfill the word of God, to bring the word of God to fulfillment, to preach the word of God in all his counsel. He says that he's been called then to fulfill the word of God, to proclaim the word of God, and to present it in all his fullness. And he defines this gospel, this word that he's been called to proclaim as the mystery, the mysterion of God, that which has been hidden from ages and generations, but has now been revealed to his saints. The, the, the writer Paul, in writing here in, in Colossians and in Ephesians, he will talk about the, the mystery, the mysterion of God. As we said already, the mystery of God, according to Paul, is not like an Agatha Christie novel or movie. It's not something that is difficult or esoteric or hard to find out. You know, somebody coming to the murder, and you have five people, 
And, and, and all five of them could possibly be the murderer, and you're trying to look for clues to see who's the murderer, but you can't find out. And, and invariably, the person you choose at the end of the movie is not the right person. And the person who you think could never do it is the one who has done it. Well, this is not the kind of baffling thing, this kind of mystery that Paul has been called to proclaim. is not that which baffles the mind. It simply means that which has been kept under wraps, that which has not been revealed. And Paul would argue that this mystery that God has not revealed, at least not given in total, in totality, is that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs with the Jews of the grace of God. What was never clear, what was never clear in the Old Testament, though it was there in conceptual form, but never amplified, was that both Jews and Gentiles should have the same status as belonging to the people of God. You see, in Jewish literature, there was a thought that Gentiles could be saved. But the only way that they could be saved is to be converted to Judaism. That's the only way a Gentile could be saved in the eyes of the rabbis. But Paul has come to reveal the mystery. That God has one people, that both Jews and Gentiles will become partakers of the grace of God. Now Paul tells them that he's been called by God. And his task is to proclaim this mystery. This mystery which he defines. The mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations. But has now been revealed to his saints. In verse 27, to them God will to make known what are the riches of the glory of the mystery among the Gentiles. You see, the mystery that has been revealed concerns God's saving purpose for the Gentiles. And then he comes to the content of the mystery. He says, which, in verse 27, which is Christ in you. You see, the mystery that has been revealed is, in its content, centralized on Christ. But Paul goes a step further. He says, this mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The Apostle Paul will go on to teach that he preaches and he exhorts, he warns every man, teaching them with all wisdom that he may present every man perfect in Christ. That is the term to you to mature, that is, is, is the reason that he's preaching and teaching is that every man may come to maturity in Christ. And he says, to this end I labor. He's laboring for the maturity according to his working, according to Christ's working, which, is, which he works in me powerfully. But what I want to do is to take for a few moments the time to reflect upon this statement as Paul describes his ministry as being called to proclaim the mystery, the mystery which he defines in verse 27 as Christ in you, the hope of glory. What I want to suggest, in fact, I really have two major points. I want to suggest first that the gospel includes that monumental truth that Christ indwells believers. What is the mystery? Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
We've said on many occasions that it was Adolf Diesmann, the German scholar, New Testament scholar, who in 1892 concluded that the phrase in Christo, in Christ, is ubiquitously used in the Apostle Paul in his epistles, in Christ. He says basically the New Testament is littered with the expression in Christ. He counts some 164 times when Paul uses the phrase in Christ. And that, that was a monumental time. It was a monumental period because, because these men opened a new avenue in New Testament study and research regarding the phrase in Christ and the doctrine of union with Christ. But we must never assume that these men was the architect or he was the discoverer of the doctrine of union with Christ. Because when you read Calvin's Institute, you will see that Calvin already recognized that the believer is united to Christ. And Calvin will speak in the Institute that you and I cannot partake of Christ without being in Christ. We cannot share the blessings of Christ without first being in him. And so he was an exponent of the doctrine of union with Christ. And Paul mentions then the believer's union with Christ here. What these men failed to do in his research is that while he focused extensively on en Christo, in Christ, the doctrine of union with Christ involved more than in Christ. There were other expressions like in him or through him which all connote this notion that the believer is united to Jesus Christ. Now what I want to just point out to you it is by far the ubiquitous expression in Paul in epistle to talk about our union with Christ as we being in Christ. You find this, for instance, and I'm just tossing this out to you. I'm not making a study of it in the gospel here, in, in Colossians here. But in the beginning of the epistle, at chapter 1, you notice how he talks about their union. In the run of the argument. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ. He begins the epistle by saying, they are in Christ. And it's interesting that, that the expression in Christ is an integral aspect of their identity. Because he's speaking to them. He first of all identifies himself, Paul is an apostle, one Called of God. And we, and just recently, I met a, a man who tells me that he is pastoring a messianic church and that he has apostles. And for a moment, I thought I was back in the first century because the last time I checked, an apostle had to be an eyewitness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was an apostle. He was one born out of due times. But Jesus Christ did appear to Paul. We can have pastors, we can have preachers, but we cannot have apostles in the narrow sense of the term and how it's used. Paul says he's an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. And then he begins to address them. And, and, and what, the convention you have here, the, the introduction, as I said to you many occasions, that in the New Testament, if you read the New Testament epistles, the New Testament epistles begin with the writer. We, we normally, when we write a letter, sign our name at the bottom. So people have to read the whole thing, or they have to go and glance at the bottom before they know who's writing. Um, you know. 
But the New Testament, when the letters are written, in the, the literary, con literary convention in that time was to begin with the writer. So, if, so uh, you know, somebody will begin, a, you know, I, John, write to you. Then you can determine, because it's coming from John, let me see if I want to read the rest of the stuff. So, so Paul begins with Paul, and then he talks about the recipients to the saints. He's describing them as saints. People who are separated unto Christ, who, who have been saved and devoted to Christ. He says, unfaithful brethren is still a descriptive term of their identity. And he says, faithful brethren in Christ. And what I'm arguing then is that in Christo, in Christ, it defines our identity. The Christian, we are called Christian for a reason. We were called followers of the way, but now we are called Christians because we are in Christ. We are linked to him. We do not have an identity apart from Jesus Christ. Our whole, and, and therefore, our entire self-image must be wrapped up with who Christ is. We must not think of ourselves merely in terms of our ethnicity. We must think of ourselves in terms of Christ. We are in him. In the verses we were looking at, you notice how the Apostle Paul again mentions in Christo. He says in verse 28, Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect or mature in Christ Jesus. In Christo. In Christ. But in the middle of this section, the writer refers to union with Christ not in terms of the believer being in Christ, but Christ being in the believer. It is by far that most references to our union with Christ, our joining to Christ, speaks of Christ and speak of us being in him. But it is also important to bear in mind that union with Christ does not only mean that we are in Christ, but that Christ lives in us. There are not many references, but there are ample references to prove this. We have it, first of all, here. The writer says of the mystery which he has been called to proclaim, that which has been hidden from ages and generations, that mystery is Christ in you. The believer is in Christ, but Christ is in the believer. And there are several places in the New Testament where this union of Christ being in the believer is emphasized. We think, for instance, of what we read in the Gospel of John, in John 15, verse 5, where Jesus says, I am the vine, and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. It is J.K. Reed who gives this example of union with Christ, of Christ being in us. And he says, just as the air which we breathe is in us and fills us. And yet we are in the same air and breathe it in. So it is also with the Christian. Christ is in us. And we are in him. 
John makes this clear. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. The Apostle Paul uses his language and speaks his language memorably. In Galatians 2.20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The present tense speaks of an ongoing occupation. Christ has now come to dwell in him. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Paul is not therefore denying his own existence. But he's saying, so far as I was a man apart from Christ and sought to live my life independently of him, I now no longer live such a life. When Christ died, I died with him objectively because I was in him. And this Christ with whom I have been crucified objectively and crucified in my conversion, this Christ has now come to make his abode and his home in me. And the life that I am now living, I am living through the power and the strength that comes from him. And I live that life by faith. You see, this indwelling of Christ is a present and ongoing indwelling. You see examples of this, of Christ indwelling in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, where Paul speaks to these believers in Corinth. He says to them, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. Do you not know yourselves that Christ is in you? What is Paul? How does Paul define the mystery? Christ in you, the hope of glory. The Christ dwells in the believers. What Paul says, examine yourselves, test yourselves. Do you not know that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you are disqualified? So we can say a number of things. The indwelling of Christ and the union of Christ with the believer is an essential element of the believer's identity. Our identity is intimately related to Christ. That Christ, by his presence, indwells. And that indwelling is an ongoing indwelling. It is a permanent indwelling. It is a mysterious indwelling. And so we come to the question, how does Christ now live in the believer? How does he indwell the believer? Well, Scripture makes it clear that Christ indwells the believer by his Spirit. And to that end, then, Romans 8, 9 to 11 is essential. Because you find in that passage an interplay between the indwelling of the Spirit and the indwelling of Christ. And so I want us to take a look at this passage in Romans 8, 9 and 11, or 9 to 11. Paul has been making it clear of the necessity of the indwelling of the Spirit. He says, but you are not in the flesh. That you're not living a life of carnality. You're not in the old Adam. You're not in the flesh. Your life is no, no longer being governed by the sinful desires of the flesh. 
But he says, you're not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. So he makes it clear that the spirit of God indwells believer. Now if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. We're no longer being governed by the power of sin. But the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. There are several truths that emerge from this section, but let me just underscore three. First, Paul reveals that the mark of a true and genuine Christian is the indwelling of the Spirit. So he says if one does not possess the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to God. You cannot be a Christian unless you have been indwelt by the Spirit. And Paul tells believers that by one spirit, 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, by one spirit we have been joined and baptized into Christ. We live in a day and age where there are some Christians who think we don't possess a spirit. Years ago, one man looked at me and said, you know, but there's a problem with you. You know, you have one problem. I thought I had tons of problems, but... He thought I only had one. And the one problem he thought I had was, he says, you don't have the Holy Spirit. I, I thought that it was a damning statement. Because he essentially was saying that myself and those whom I serve were not Christians. If a man does not have the Spirit of, spirit of God, he's none of his. And so Paul makes it clear that the mark of a true and genuine Christian is indwelling spirit. Secondly, he says, the spirit who indwells the believer is the spirit of Christ. That's what we find in our text. So the writer makes it clear. The same spirit is the spirit of Christ. And thirdly, he declares that indeed the believer who is indwelt with the Spirit of Christ is also indwelt by Christ or have Christ in him. So he could speak in verse 10, if Christ is in you. So these are the three facts that are there. One, it is not possible to be a Christian without indwelling spirit. The indwelling spirit is the spirit of Christ. And the text also reveals that Christ indwells the believer. So what you find there, and the point I'm trying to make is that the, the, the Apostle Paul speaks of the indwelling of Christ and the indwelling of the spirit interchangeably. That is to be indwelt by Christ is synonymous with being indwelt with the Spirit, or by the Spirit. Stated differently, the indwelling of the Spirit is the means by which Christ indwells the believer. Because the Spirit is a Spirit of Christ. 
So to say that a person is indwelt by the Spirit is to say the person is indwelt by Christ because he is the Spirit of Christ. How does Christ dwell within us? He lives within us by his personal Spirit. And we must understand this, that the Holy Spirit is not a power. The Holy Spirit does have power, but he's not an entity. We don't refer to the Spirit as, an, as it, but him, him, because he's personal. He's the personal Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the Spirit of God. And so it is by, this, by Christ's Spirit that he indwells the believer. But we also need to know that Christ indwells us not only by his spirit, but by faith. So we read in Ephesians 3, 16 and 17, where Paul is praying for them when he, before he comes to speak about this lavish, infinite love of Christ. He says they need to be strengthened in the inward man. They need divine energy, divine strength to be able to understand something of the incomprehensible love of God. And he says this. He's praying that God would grant you, he says, according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So Christ indwells the believer by his spirit, but he indwells the believer by faith. These are not contradictory statements. Because what he's making clear, it is that by faith, it is by faith that we grasp our union with Christ. In other words, it is by faith that we live out in our daily lives this union with Christ. But Christ dwells within us. What is the mystery? Christ in you. The hope of glory. And so this profound truth is that Jesus Christ indwells the believer. And he indwells us spiritually. So this union between Christ and the believer, it is permanent, it is present, but it is spiritual. Because it is by his spirit that Christ takes up residence and dwells within us. But the second truth is that the indwelling of Christ in the believer is the basis of certainty that we shall receive eternal glory. Paul says, the message that he has been sent to proclaim is Christ, but Christ in you. And then he elaborates this, he says. This is your basis for certainty that you will receive glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. The Apostle Paul made it clear that the promise of the gospel was that of glory. We only have to go back to verses 4 and 5 in this same chapter. Colossians chapter 1, verse 4, he says that he has been giving thanks and praying for them always. Since we heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and of your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. What Paul is arguing then is that when these believers heard the gospel, they were told of a hope 
that was laid up for them in heaven. This is what he's speaking about in terms of glory. Because when the gospel comes to us, it not only calls us away from sin, it not only changes our nature, the gospel brings with it the hope of glory, that heavenly hope. It comes with a promise that God's intention is not merely to deliver us from hell, but to bring us into glory with himself. That is God's design. And he tells them in the same chapter, verse 23, that they've been united to Christ, that, they, that they, are, they, are, they are now reconciled to God, to the body of his flesh through death, that they may be presented holy. The reason God has reconciled them through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross is that they may be holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. In other words, they are, we are reconciled to God. God has given Christ to make peace between himself and us that we might live a holy lives. And he says, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not move away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, the hope of the gospel is glory. The promise of eternal life. The promise of living with God forever. This hope then is the eschatological glory of sharing in the life of God. We see something of this in Paul's epistle to the Romans in chapter 5 verse 1 and 2. When he says this. Therefore having been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through whom we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Every Christian who is indwelt by Christ. Has the certainty of the hope of glory. Do you possess the indwelling Christ? Well Paul says. Christ in you, the hope of glory, the hope of glory. How do we have this hope of glory? How is it Christ in us, the hope of glory? Because I've argued before that Christ in us is really, that the spirit of Christ is in us. Well, I'm not suggesting that Christ and the spirit are in fact one and the same. The scriptures make a clear distinction between uh, the second person of the Trinity and the third person of the Trinity. And so while they may be distinguished, they may never be separated. There is this perichosis where the Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father and in the Holy Spirit. The entire Godhead can never be separated. And so to have Christ in us is to have a spirit in us. And the Apostle Paul tells us what happens when the Spirit of God comes within us, when the Spirit of Christ is indwelling us, that he seals us. And so we read, for example, in 2 Corinthians 1, 21, verse 22, Now he who has established us with you in Christ and has anointed us in God, who also has sealed us and has given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. How do we know that we have the hope of glory? Because when we have the indwelling Christ, we also have the indwelling Holy Spirit, whom God has given to us as a guarantee. And the term there is Arabon. 
It is used elsewhere. In Ephesians 1, 13-14, In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee, the arabon, of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. The Apostle Paul uses it. How do we then know that, we, that Christ in us is the hope of glory? Because God has given us with Christ his spirit. And the spirit is a down payment of the age to come. You need to understand that the spirit belongs to the future. He has no real sense that the Spirit came at Pentecost upon the early church. And the Spirit indwells the church and indwells believers. But the Spirit is essentially the Spirit of the age to come. And it is a Spirit whom God has given us as a down payment. What does that mean? Well, you know what a down payment is. A down payment means, I want you to hold on to this for a little while. There's more to come. And God has given us his spirit. But, but he's saying to us, you haven't yet, well, you haven't seen anything yet. Because you have not yet experienced the fullness of the spirit. It is because Christ is in us and his spirit has been given to us as a down payment that we know we have glory because the spirit of God will keep us until the day of the Lord Jesus Christ and lead us into the glory of the Lord. Transform us. Sanctify us. And then take us into glory to be with our Lord. You and I. Must recognize and appreciate. Our union with Christ. Do you know anyone can become a member of another religion? You can subscribe to a particular set of beliefs. Or a creed. You can affirm allegiance to a particular leader. You can go through some initiation rite. And you are welcome in the bosom of that religion. But to be a Christian is a supernatural act. It is a supernatural work. It is a spiritual work. It is a spiritual miracle. It is God in Christ joining himself to us and Christ in us. This is the mystery. Christ in you. The hope of glory. No one can become a believer without being indwelt by the living Christ. And the indwelling of Christ is the basis of our justification of our adoption of every spiritual blessing we receive. We receive it by being in Christ and Christ in us. And you and I must take great comfort that Christ is in us. That this awesome Savior has taken up his residence. He has not only pitched his tent in the world, but he has pitched his tent in us. And I would freely confess that this is a mystery beyond our understanding. But very often, as the old reformers and the old theologians said, it was faith seeking understanding. We don't always understand everything, but it is faith seeking understanding. And some things will never be clarified until we stand before him, and then we shall know fully as we are known. 
But while we are in this flesh, we see dimly as through a glass, but then we shall see face to face. But we receive this truth by grace and with joy that we are in Christ and Christ is in us. Christ in you. Imagine that. You get up in your car tomorrow and you go to work and somebody cut you off. Well, Christ in you. You're going to work, you get in the office, you have a lousy day, Monday morning blues. Christ in you. And you go to pick up groceries. And you, you feel like grumbling because you've got to do all the laundry for all the lazy bodies in your house. Christ in you. Christ in you. What, what a thought. That you and I carry around Christ in us. But we cannot have Christ and have his blessings unless we are in him. That Christ is pleased to dwell in us. That you're never alone. And, and when, when you face the challenges of the world and the animosity of men, you must know that Christ is not merely with you, but in you. Christ in you. Christ in you. So we must praise God. We must think long upon the thought that Jesus Christ dwells in you. Secondly, you must depend upon the indwelling Christ. Because indeed the apostle says this. He prays that God would strengthen them according to the riches of his glory. That they may be strengthened with might in the inward man. That Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. It is as Christ dwells in us that we are strengthened inwardly. But the indwelling Christ then, by his spirit, is the ultimate ground of all our strength. And so we must rely not upon the strength that we have, but the strength which he gives. And it is for this reason Paul, in verse 9, when he talks about his labor, talks about his laboring in Christ, he says, to this end, I, lay, I also labor, that is in preaching the word, I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. And what I'm saying is that when Christ indwells you, he works mightily in you by his power. We often ask the question, how are we going to answer the world? How are we going to give a defense for the gospel? How are we going to reach a hostile world? in you. You ask the question, how am I going to live a godly life? It is Christ in you. Christ in you. May I make one more point on this and then make a final point. Because Christ is in us. We must consider ourselves not our own. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are temples of Christ. We are holy people. We are not our own. Christ owns us. And Christ occupies us. 
You need to know that you've been occupied by Christ. That he's not a guest in you. He's at home. You are his. And so it means that whatever we think and whatever we say and whatever we do must be filtered first and foremost through him. That all we do, we must do to please the indwelling Christ. And finally, my friends, Christ in you means that you must live your eye with your eyes set upon glory. Because Christ in you means that your destiny is one of glory. Paul says, But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, beloved brethren, by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pass through a veil of tears. This is a world of suffering. We are never immunized from hardship. But the indwelling Christ signifies that there is glory to come. And one day he will wipe away the tears from your eyes. He will call you and he will say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter now into the joy of the Lord. And that shall be glory for me and glory for you. May God help you that you know without a doubt that Jesus Christ lives in you and that you live appropriately because you bear the Savior about. And may you live in light of the glory which is to come, which is in dwelling spirit, is himself the guarantee.